Hello, and welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly roundup of rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. In this episode, Lindsay looks at a fascinating event in Canadian history with high treason, the trial of Louis Riel. Mike explores heaven and ale, a title which some may find redundant. Stephanie takes to the air with dastardly dirigibles. And I'm feeling a bit bookish with hardback. But first, Mason tours the islands with Islebound. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Islebound. I've been very clear in the past that I'm a Red Raven Games fan. Ryan Lockett and company are doing something very rare, I think, in hobby games, which is creating a unified aesthetic world for us to experience and share. In Islebound, we're invited back into the world of Azrim from above and below and near and far, but this time we've taken to the seas. Islebound has quickly become one of my favorite Ryan Lockett games, and if you've enjoyed any of his other work, I think it definitely deserves your attention. Unlike Above and Below or Near and Far, the storytelling elements in Islebound are fairly minimal. There are event cards that give you a little blurb of a story, something sort of like the arcade mode cards in Near and Far. But it's mostly a resource management game that draws in a number of other familiar mechanics that almost teach themselves if you're a relatively experienced board gamer. You move your ship around the board to different ports taking on goods, selling goods, and either capturing or aligning yourself with the local populace. You're also sending the money you make back to your home port to help build your own village, and the building cards you buy give you extra abilities, in-game points, and special powers. Of course, you've also got to have someone to sail the ship, so some ports allow you to recruit from a diverse cast of potential crew members. Crew members give you extra powers, let you sail farther, or give you an extra die when you go to capture a port. I really appreciate the simple combat system in Islebound, which allows for conflict but is still very low interaction. If you want to come in behind another player and retake one of the port cities they've established, you're not in any kind of direct conflict with them. It's just going to cost you plus two to the difficulty. That usually means just one or two more pirate or sea serpent cards you need to recruit before taking them on. I foolishly skipped the Kickstarter campaign for Islebound, mostly because I'm not too keen on piratey stuff, but I really couldn't have been more wrong about this game. There's no sense of cliched swashbuckling adventure, which is usually what puts me off. Instead, Islebound is, more than anything, a game about economics and priorities. Fairly common across most of the Red Raven catalog is a sense that winning is an outcome of prioritizing actions well. Like a lot of my favorite worker placement or action selection games, in Islebound I find myself thinking, oh, but if I had just one more turn. I know not everyone enjoys the feeling of, I don't think I'm doing very well, but the halfway point of almost every game I really love feels like, wow, I'm going to lose and I'm doing very, very poorly, regardless of how I'm actually doing. I think that kind of pressure and desire to do more than you're able are hallmarks of a really solid resource management game. Islebound is something more than just a pick up and deliver game, too. This is one of those titles that you think is about one thing, but it's really about something else completely different. At the end of your first game, you'll say, Oh, I should have made different choices. Like a lot of other Red Raven titles, the end game is determined by the players themselves, not by the rounds. I used to see this as a weakness, but after multiple plays of Islebound and other Locket titles, I see it as one of their strengths. The last round in Islebound triggers when someone buys their 8th building card, so this forces you to pay attention to where everyone else is at least a little bit, without you really needing to know exactly what they're doing. And ending the game isn't necessarily a way to win. Just because I bought more building cards doesn't mean that my buildings are worth more than yours are. Money is incredibly tight in Islebound, and one of the few ways to generate more of it is by taking or aligning the port cities, but there's no real direct action that allows you to generate significant amounts of money. You're not just picking something up, taking it somewhere else, and then selling it for coin all the time. You are picking something up, taking it somewhere else, and treating it for the influence you need in order to make allies with these ports in later turns. I love pick up and deliver games, and it's one of my absolute favorite genres, and I'm a total sucker for get these goods and then put them on this card to fill this contract games. But in Islebound, if you have a stack of fish on your board, 
you're not just going to go to the fish spot on the board and trade it for coins. There are, at any given time, maybe three or four different things you could do with the fish, on its own or in conjunction with other goods. Rather than creating a spiraling cycle of emotional paralysis, this forces you to make tactical, best current scenario choices as steps towards your larger strategic goals. In a lot of the Euro games we've all played, there's a stack of goal cards, and one of the game's actions allows you to pick up some of the cards off that stack, look through them, keep one or two, and then hold them for in-game scoring. But in Islebound, there are two face-up goal cards all the time. When you move your ship onto the port that activates one of these cards, everyone in the game gets to benefit from them, and you personally just get one extra point. Once you've used them, they get removed from the game, so part of deciding when to activate them keeps you involved in what your opponents are doing. You can't help but benefit your opponents, but you often want to make sure those extra points are being activated at a time they'll benefit you the most. The boxing components here are, unsurprisingly, wonderful. I was able to purchase a second-hand copy of the Kickstarter edition, which includes some lovely wooden boats. It also came with a bunch of wooden resources, which I never use in Red Raven games because I like the art on the tokens so much. The cards are high-quality, well-linen finished, and so far I haven't sleeved them, but I might as we play more games of Islebound. My only issue with the components was the multi-piece variable board made from some fan-shaped cutouts. Mine was initially warped a little bit, but after several plays and adjusting to the low humidity of my house, it seems to have sorted itself out. So, who should buy Islebound? People who are already Lockett and Red Raven Games fans. People who want a pick-up and deliver game, but are looking for something slightly deeper. People who want to experience a solid 60 minutes of trading, planning, and acquiring, and don't mind keeping an eye on their opponents. And people who have always wanted to captain a ship with a bird, a warthog, and a lizard as their crew. I give Islebound 8 out of 8 low-thatched buildings huddled together on the cliffs above Marhaven. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. After years of full-bore information overload, I've recently taken to buying some games with little input on how they play. How about having an ale on word-of-mouth recommendation only? No reviews, no playthroughs to set my expectations. Just some general buzz. Well... General buzz, a theme involving beer, and knowing the track record of Michael Kiesling. But will that be enough? In Heaven and Ale, we are Trappist monks growing ingredients to make beer and then brewing beer. This is a traditional way many of the monasteries raise funds to pay for expenses. In Heaven and Ale, which I assume is supposed to be a pun on heaven and hell, each player goes around a market track buying the resources of barley, water, hops, yeast, and wood, plus hiring monks as helpers. The track is similar to Francis Drake, where you can go however far you want until you reach the end of the track for that round, but can never go backwards. Once you reach the end of the track, you may choose whether to start first next round, or to take one of the three available bonuses. Once everyone has finished going around the track for that round, then the goods and monk spaces refill, including spaces that still have resources, so you'll have even more options next round. When you buy a good from this market track, you then plant it in a field space, which is on your player board. You may place the good on either the sunny side or the shady side, though the sunny side costs twice as much. Here's where the game gets clever. In addition to the 15 resource spaces and the 4 monk spaces on the track, the market also contains 6 scoring spaces. If you choose to land on a scoring space, you take the marker and place it on the right side of the board to mark what you're scoring. If you're scoring one of the 5 goods, then you simply get the value of ducats for each tile of that type on the shady side of the board and you move up your resources one space on the resource track for the value of each tile on the sunny side of your player board. The resource track represents the goods that you are saving to make into beer later. Goods you get gold for represent goods sold for cash. 
If you score a monk, then the monk triggers each resource or monk tile next to them, and those tiles get you ducats, move you up the resource track, or move your brewer. If when placing your resource tiles in a field, you manage to completely surround a shed space, then you get to place a shed tile, which may also move your brewer and potentially allows you to activate one or more tiles as well. At the end of the game, you want your brewer and your resources as high as they can go because that, in theory, is how you make the most beer, and therefore get the most points. Personally, I wish the making beer part wasn't just how scoring occurs. At the end of the day, having an ale actually has very little to do with being at a monastery or actually brewing beer. I guess you could assume that instead of planting water, you are digging wells, but I can't quite square what you're doing with yeast as you don't grow cultivated yeast in fields, but whatever. I'll admit the lack of real thematic tie-in really soured my first couple plays of this game. Heaven and Ale is, as one should expect from Michael Kiesling and Andreas Schmidt, a very clever game that appears deceptively simple. I initially thought this could be a gateway game because the rules are so simple and seriously considered playing two-player to be broken at first, but I thankfully kept playing and realized that the issue was how I was playing. That nothing scores and you get no money unless you choose to score a particular good or monk is huge. Yes, you will eventually want to have tiles of most goods in your fields, but how you do that is very important. If you buy every good on the board and go for breadth of goods from the start, then you'll never earn enough money to buy more goods later. You must serially go for a depth strategy with each good, balancing the sunny and shady sides of the board as well as you need lots of money at first, but also need to make progress on your tracks. And not every good starts on the same spot on the track, so some like barley you have to activate a lot more before it reaches a usable level. Others like wood you can mostly use for money because its starting level is pretty high to begin with. In addition to balancing goods in the fields and trying to stretch your money, you must also consider which goods you wish to score. I have yet to score all 6 resource spots plus the 4 monks. The most I've scored is 8. So you'll also want to keep that in mind while deciding which tiles to add to your fields because triggering adjacent score options allows you to play privilege cards. Privilege cards are one-time bonuses that either give money or help advance your resource tracks. These are crucial for the game. The other main actual scoring mechanism in the game is by collecting barrels. These barrels represent goals that each player has achieved. There are two spots on the market track to get these barrels, and when you stop at that location you may collect as many as you've accomplished. So you'll want to put off collecting these barrels as long as possible to not waste a turn. But don't wait too long as the first barrel for each achievement is worth 4 points and the second only 2 points. And if they're both gone, well you waited too long and are just out of luck. Christian Fiore's art in Heaven and Ale is very nice, very thematic, and very tranquil. Doesn't blow me away, but I really feel like it fits the style and theme of the game well. At the end of the game, my player board looks lovely. My one complaint has less to do with the art than components. The player boards in this game are super thin. I wish they were thicker, though the market tracks and good tiles and even the money are very nice. So, I previously mentioned that I started off playing Heaven and Ale 2 player and thought it was broken. Turned out after playing a few higher player account games and coming back to two player, I think this game scales nicely. All you do is reduce the number of times around the track, but two and three player games give more scoring options in the final round to help make up for the reduced number of rounds. It's a very clean and easy mechanism to deal with. So that's Heaven and Ale, a mechanically sound and fun game once you know how it works. But if you're looking for a little more theme in your beer game, you may want to look elsewhere. If you'd like to discuss Heaven and Ale or Trappist beers, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly. This weekend, after a late night conversation with a coworker while we were at a work conference, I found myself Googling, is steampunk still a thing? The predictive search that appeared right below it as I was typing 
A-M-P-U-N was, is steampunk safe? Spoiler alert, yeah, it probably is. And in this moment, I both felt absolutely uncool, but also instantly longing to replay the game Dastardly Dirigibles. Designed by Justin DeWitt and released in 2016 by Fireside Games, Dastardly Dirigibles is a game where you must compete against other airship designers to create the most dazzling dirigible in hopes of taking over from your retiring mentor. In this game, players will be constructing their airship, composed of seven different parts using a shared deck of cards. Each of those seven parts comes in seven different design styles, or card suits. At the beginning, players will shuffle the deck and deal five cards to each player. Players will then draw one card from the draw deck to determine who will go first, and those cards then go face up into the Emporium for players to draw from later. Now it's time for everyone to build their ship. On a player's turn, they will first draw up to five cards if need be, either from the cards remaining in the draw deck or from the Emporium. Then, the player will take three actions. A player can do any of the following actions in any combination. They can discard one of the five cards in their hand. They can swap one of the cards in their hand for one in the Emporium. They can clear and replace those cards in the Emporium. Or a player can play one of the cards in their hand. If a player chooses to play an airship card, he or she will play it to their board in the predetermined space that that part belongs to. Once that part has been played, every other player in the game that has that same part in their hand must also play it onto their own board, whether they want to or not. This means not only are you trying to build the most impressive airship on your turn, you're also trying to thwart the plans of your opponents, and can do so with immediate satisfaction. There are also some special power cards in the deck that a player can play instead of playing a part to their airship. Once a player has taken their three actions, play passes. This continues until one player has completed their airship with all seven parts, either on their own turn or on someone else's. Then that round ends and all airships are scored. Players look to see which suit they have the most of on their ship and score two points per matching part. All ships are scored even if incomplete, and all wild parts are worth one point. Then play starts all over again. Highest score at the end of three rounds wins the game. As a two-player game, Dastardly Dirigibles is a great hand management and set collection game. But play it at four or five, and you really have to balance your focus on your own airship and how close your opponents are to finishing theirs. Many times I found myself playing a card that wouldn't be my first choice when trying to further my ship because I knew there was a good chance if I played a different part, it would be of even greater benefit to one of my fellow players. With so many cards being played in such a short time, Dastardly Dirigibles is one of those rare games where the more players you have, the faster the rounds go. All in all, Dastardly Dirigibles is a solid little game. It's beyond easy to learn, but there's enough strategy where it isn't just about who lucked out by starting with the best hand. And at all player counts from 2 to 5, an average 3-round game lasts about 45 minutes, 
With the components being just cards and some folding player boards, it's highly portable. If I did have a complaint, it is with those player boards, which are really just tri-folded coated paper, and I'd appreciate something a bit more sturdy. I found that getting those player sheets to lay flat is an effort in futility. Otherwise, the rulebook is well laid out, and the artwork does a great job of setting up that steampunk tone. Dastardly Dirigibles retails for under $20 and can often be found in the $12 to $15 range, so it's a great value when you're looking to pick up a new filler game. For the 5 by I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Hardback, designed by Jeff Beck and Tim Fowers and published in 2018 by Fowers Games, is a follow-up to Fowers' 2014 release, Paperback. Paperback featured a pulp writer named Paige Turner, and Hardback is about her great-grandmother, 19th-century novelist Penelope Quill. I previously reviewed Paperback for episode 10 of this podcast, and I will be comparing the two games, but I'm not going to describe Paperback's rules in detail again today. If you aren't familiar with Paperback and want to know more, check out the previous review by me in episode 10. Hardback and Paperback look very similar at first glance. Each is a deck builder about using cards with letters to spell words, but the focus is very different. The key to success in Paperback is being able to spell valuable words, which usually means longer words with more difficult letters, but that is not what makes a valuable word in Hardback. For one thing, Instead of having wild cards in your hand along with the letters, in hardback any card can be made wild by turning it face down. This makes hardback much less a test of your vocabulary. If you have a terrible hand of letters that don't go together at all, just turn some of them over. You don't score points on face down cards, but because any card can be wild, you will never draw a hand that you can't spell anything with. There's always something you can do. It's also more difficult to get extra cards in your hand in hardback. Instead of having cards that let you draw more cards, in the style of Dominion or Paperback, in Hardback you collect little black ink tokens. You can spend an ink to draw another card. But this is risky. Whatever letter you draw with the ink token, you have to use it in your word. You might draw something useful, say an S or a T, or you might draw a Q or X or something that will really mess up your word. There are white tokens called Ink Remover, that allow you to fix the mess by discarding a letter you drew with ink. But ink remover is harder to get than ink, so the risk remains. Personally, I don't often use ink to draw extra cards. Instead, I collect it, and then if I'm just a little short of buying a card I really want, I can spend three ink to get an extra coin. I do have friends who like drawing extra cards with ink, but in general, the press-your-luck element of ink limits the number of extra letters you can realistically get. There's a victory point bonus for spelling longer words if you use an optional mechanism called literary awards. In my experience, without that bonus to steer players towards longer words, they just don't happen in hardback. Another big addition to hardback is the genres. Now, if you've played Star Realms, this will sound very familiar. Every card belongs to one of four genres, mystery, romance, adventure, and horror. Cards have bonus abilities that you get to use if you play more than one card from the same genre in your word so there's a strong advantage to focusing on one or two genres when you buy cards. Each genre offers different abilities. One lets you thin your deck, another lets you score wild cards, so the genre you focus on tends to steer how you'll play the game. The genres have a huge impact on gameplay. Winning hardback isn't about spelling impressive words. 
It's about getting cards with good bonus abilities and building a deck that allows you to reliably use the bonus abilities. To me, paperback is a word game with deck building in it, and hardback is a deck building game with words in it. One of the best games of hardback I've played, I spent almost the entire game spelling variations of the same word. Stay, star, stray, stand. Turn after turn, basically the same word. That combination of letters had great bonus abilities, so it paid off each turn, even though it wasn't the most creative use of the letters. The times I've tried to play as if it were paperback, tried to spell the biggest, most impressive words I could, I did badly. That just isn't what hardback is about. There are several optional mechanisms, the literary awards that I mentioned earlier, also variable player powers that can be either passive, meaning they only affect you, or aggressive, meaning they allow you to mess with your opponents, and events that limit the types of words you can spell. Some or all of these mechanisms can be added to make the game more complex, more difficult, or just meaner. Like paperback, hardback has a co-op mode which can be played solo, and like paperback, it is challenging. I've played hardback solo a half dozen times and haven't won yet, but I remember thinking the paperback solo game was impossible to win until one day I started winning it. I'm going to keep trying with hardback solo. I'll get there eventually. On a much more trivial note, setting up hardback is a breeze. Unlike paperback, which has 12 different stacks of cards that are shuffled and laid out individually, hardback has one giant deck and a score tracker. Easy peasy. And I have to say, I love the mechanism for choosing the start player. It's the player who most recently used a pen. So which do I like better, paperback or hardback? I can't really say. I love them both. I think I'd be more likely to recommend paperback to a fan of word games. But word games aren't for everyone. I know plenty of folks who are smart, good gamers that freeze up when faced with a word game. If you feel like that, give hardback a try. The Scrabble-like pressure to come up with impressive words just isn't there. It's a fun, solid deck builder, with words in it. And that's Hardback. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not collecting letters to write the next great novel, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hello, it's Lindsay here. In this episode, I'm going to talk about High Treason, The Trial of Louis Riel, July 1885. Designed by Alex Berry, with artwork by Tim Allen. Published by Victory Point Games and Frosted Games. It's a two-player game with a 20-40 to 40 minute duration. This was a game that I wasn't totally sure of at first, but was nonetheless intrigued. I wasn't sure how a game simulating a courtroom trial could work, if it would be enjoyable, and would I really be able to become immersed in a theme that I had very little knowledge about. High Treason takes us to 18th century Canada, where Rial led the Metis, a group of Aboriginal settlers, to freedom. There's obviously a huge story here that you should definitely delve into further if you're interested. Despite the revolt, their success, and Rial's strong leadership, he was later arrested and tried for treason. In 1885, he was sentenced to death by hanging, and I wasn't familiar with this story, and I'm glad to be now. I've also never played a Victory Point game before, so I was excited to discover what it had in store. The front cover art is slid over a box that has a similar appearance to like a takeaway container, and I thought that was really cool. I also love that it came with Victory Point's printed napkin for the purpose of wiping soot from the laser cut tokens once punched, but I really thought that the napkin should be preserved. You had the player raids and bold which have like card stock and then you have the cards and tokens. As an overall package it's really simple in terms of art and design which I really like and the card art is authentic photographic images with some information as to the story of Real and what each card means. 
In high treason, you can either play as the defence or prosecution. Although I was found guilty, we had the ability within the game to change his fate. Despite the appearance of the game with heavy text and symbols, it's actually extremely straightforward to grasp and play. You have five main rounds before the end of the game. Choose five cards to learn more about the jurors. Their traits such as farmer or protestant allow you to attempt to keep those who may vote in your favour and dismiss others that will not be sympathetic to your case. Then there's the trial in chief that covers rounds two and three. Here you can play cards for their abilities or action allowance. You can also use these to play sway markers on the jurors and once the jurors sway spaces are full they are locked. You can also use actions to argue which is to move aspects on the central board into your favour. Or you can use abilities to move the insanity and guilt markers which also affect the outcome of the trial. The penultimate round is summation where you play cards you banked or kept from previous rounds. You can use these for either the summation event or to sway on not jurors and the deliberation is the final round where all traits on jurors are revealed. For any jurors you locked you can move the corresponding aspects on the board and then move on to scoring. Position of the aspects, guilt and insanity will tell you if the jury decided for or against. Although I liked the game on my initial play I still wasn't sure what to make of it and it took several plays to click with me and for me to say yeah this is actually really good. I found this to be a very decent hand management game with a lot of balance involved and I have a fondness for multi-use cards and the choices they present to you. And there are difficult decisions to make throughout the game and a fair amount of strategy involved. From the jury selection round where you're thinking of which cards to bank or later on when you decide whether to use a card for action allowance or the abilities it hits the ground running and doesn't let up. It was a slow burner in the sense that it took a while to click with me, but the game itself is fast paced. It's extremely thematic and I think it should be for a game of this nature. The summation round feels particularly climatic. If you played it right, it can really bring it home. As the prosecution, you have to be careful about the sequence in which you play your summation cards. As you only play three before the defense plays five, and then you play your other two. So it can be a bit of a risk at this point, or maybe you've just planned it really well, but then again, you don't know what the other player has in store. What I also realised after my first game was how at the core of it, High Treason is about the sway markers and the jurors. So if your focus slides from this and you're looking solely at the board aspects, the game can really get away from you. So you must really carefully manage everything. What I found most surprising was the duration. I had the idea it was going to feel a bit more weighty, a little more epic, and I wasn't let down, but I was surprised. It was over pretty quickly, the rounds flew past, so it almost feels like a, a very full filler game, which I don't think is a bad thing. I would have liked it to perhaps last a little longer, to have a little more to and fro, but the five rounds do make for a neat game, which is pleasant to play and gives you time to have a few games. There is the opportunity with the heavy text to learn about the history of the trial, which I really like as I love to learn, but you don't necessarily have to take that interest. The gameplay is fun and interesting and it's not crucial that you read all the flavour text on the cards. But it's a nice touch and I'm really glad it's there. I like that the game has many layers to peel and strategies to try out and I love that for a two-player game of this theme, it's not huge on conflict. I first described it as a mean game but in hindsight it's not particularly. It's a little bit take that in places but not overly so and certainly not for the sake of it. Obviously you're going to annoy each other by messing up plans, moving markers in the opposite direction, swaying jurors at the last minute but it all makes sense within the game and it's fun. If you really do like your two player games friendly it may not suit your tastes but I wouldn't let it deter you from trying it out. This was actually the first in a series of World on Trial games and I really love the idea. So I'm very interested to see what else Victory Point has in store for those. If you want to see or hear more from me, I'm Shiny Happy Meeples on Instagram and YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter under capital S, capital H, capital M, Meeples Co. Or visit my website, shinyhappymeeplesco.com. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. 
listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.